Good morning. The Jewish Christians to whom the letter of the Hebrews is written have been Christians for years, but the years had not been kind to them. The anticipated second coming of Christ, they thought would happen at any moment, had not yet materialized. And the early all-for-one and one-for-all days of Christianity in Jerusalem had been eroded by famines and persecutions, forced to leave their homeland then. They resettled in the Roman Empire, having left their neighborhood and their livelihood. Um, Their decision to become Christians was now adversely affecting not only themselves, but their children. And some in these Jewish Christian communities are leaving the church to go back into the synagogue. Those who are refusing to desert Christ are critical and resentful of those who are bailing out and the church is splitting. The Jewish Christian community, again, was fracturing. They have those that stay and those that left have a question Questions that haunt them, and they haunt some of us as well. In fact, all of us as well. I would imagine at some level, why do we suffer? And they had made decisions to become children of God. And why then not only an initial experience of difficulty, but what now has become a decade and a half to two decades of difficulty? Is God unaware of their plight? Does he not care about what they're going through? In addressing their disillusionment and division, the writer of this letter focuses their attention on the character of God. You know the prayer, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food, amen. God is great, and he's sovereign. And that gives us comfort, but greatness without goodness, God is good. That's his sympathy. And so... His greatness, his sovereignty, and his goodness, his sympathy, the writer is combining. And as we come to the last part of the middle part of chapter 4 and the early chart of chapter 5, these two things come right together. Look what it says. Probably um, these verses, this place, if I have a favorite place in the Bible, this is it. This passage here and um, it says, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have to start with the end in mind. And again, that's when we think of what we are to do, we have to think of, well, where do we need to land? What do we need to end up being able to do? And what it it says here, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what is we are commanded to do is with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. And that word confidence is a Greek word. We've talked about it before, parousia. And it's just, you don't need to know the Greek. Just, it's a specific kind of confidence. It's not, it's, what it literally means is bold frankness. Bold 
frankness. And this is a picture. If you were in the Roman Empire and you were called into the um, anteroom of a leader, if you had been summoned, um, and you would, as a Roman citizen, have the right to enter into the presence of this dignitary with parousia. That's a word they used. And so they would have given, you're a Roman citizen, come with parousia. What does that mean? That means enter with the sense that you are invited. You're invited. So you don't have to slink into the presence. You can go into the presence because the door has been opened. And not only enter with a sense that you belong, but when you enter, you are to speak freely there. You are to speak freely. And so you don't have to ask permission to speak freely. No, you're a Roman citizen. You have parousia. That's understood. So the idea of entering is to enter with a sense that you belong and to speak freely when there. This is what God is directing us to do. And he is inviting us into his presence and not just inviting us to enter, but to speak freely with him there. Not just in the beginning of our Christian life, but to the end. Listen to what it says earlier in chapter 314. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. That word confidence, if we hold our original parousia firm until the end. At the beginning of our Christian life, we might have found an ability to enter God's presence and be open with him. Perhaps, perhaps not. But what is characterized in the beginning of our Christian life is to characterize us in the end. This is what God wants us to enter his presence. This is where we're heading, into the throne room of God. He summons us there to speak freely with him. And in so doing, it says we receive mercy and grace. It says, let us then with confidence approach the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're interested in receiving mercy and finding grace to help in the place where you need it, what we are instructed to do, okay, then learn to enter God's presence with confidence. Enter and speak freely while there. So the question becomes, what do we need to do in order to develop this ability? Many of us grew up reciting pattern prayers, and they have their place. Those who of us who were raised in more liturgical, like Christian Catholic churches, we learn these prayers, and those set prayers are fine. I get to be augmented by an ability to just freely talk to God and to tell him what's going on with us. That's what we are to do. Um, what do we need to do in order to do that? I'm going to suggest that we need divine sympathy. We need divine sympathy because of the word of God. Look what it says as we kind of put this, these passages together. Look at what it says. This is what we just looked at last week. I want you to listen to the impact of the word of God. Now, the word of God at this time, when it says the word of God is living and active, what word of God would that have been? The only word of God that existed at that time were the 39 books of the Old Testament. 
the New Testament, the 27 books, the last half of the Bible, wasn't pulled together until the early part of the 4th century. So when it says, as we'll read, the Word of God is living and active, and it's going to talk about its impact. What we're to understand is it's the specifically the Word of God, which was the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Word of God. Here's what it says. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by following the same sort of disobedience. Before we go on, I'm going to do just a little commercial. What we've been looking over the past weeks as it's focused on rest, Jay talked about it, let us make every effort to enter God's rest. If there is a do with respect to the Christian life, you say, okay, Mike, I know what you're supposed to believe. What am I supposed to do? Give me an activity. Here it is. Enter God's rest. Let us make every effort to enter God's rest. Why? So that we won't fall by following the same sort of disobedience. What we found is that in the wilderness, it was rebellion and bitterness and hard-heartedness, unbelief, and that led to them not entering the promised land. And what the writer indicates to we who are not making the same kind of geographical journey, but he says that there is a rest. And what he indicates, make every effort to enter God's rest. In so doing, you will find the capacity to deal with the hard-heartedness that that did not allow them to enter. So, what am I saying? Um, we're going to, at the end of, on the last Saturday in September, we're going to talk about how to enter God's rest. I can't think of a more important subject. I think it's priority one. And so what we'll talk about is restlessness, why restlessness is a problem. We'll talk about the four steps to entering God's rest, and we'll talk about opportunities to do enter that rest and obstacles. And again, we're going to do from 8.30 to 12. There's no fee for this, but we would like you to register so that we can have enough materials available. And so there, there it is. That's a, an encouragement commercial. Um, we need to uh, connect, though, as we think about uh, entering God's rest, we also need to connect with divine sympathy. And it's because of where we've been. Look what it says. For the word of God is living and active. I, and we did this last week. I'd like you to get an image of this. What would this feel like? Okay. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let me tell you what exposed means. It could mean it has one or two images attached. It's a wrestler grabbing another wrestler by the neck, and has that wrestler in a very vulnerable position. The two images for exposed is being vulnerable. One is, if you've, if a wrestler's got another guy by the neck, and he can throw, this guy's very vulnerable. It's, it's, it's weak, and that could be the image. Or, I think probably more likely, it's depicting the sacrificial victim, the sacrificial lamb, or bull, or whatever it is, and it comes to the place where there is the priest with the sword, the blade, 
standing over and you stretch back the neck of the victim and so it's prepared to receive the killing stroke. That is the picture given. Uh, to be naked, to be exposed, all are naked and exposed, and it gives the sense naked in the Greek means naked. So here it is. Um, so it's to have the sense of lying and somebody over you with a sharp double-edged sword. And they tell you, just move your neck back. I tell you what, if, if, you're, if you're on that table and they're that person with the sword, let me tell you what you're not going to do. You will not take a nap. You will be restless. You won't be at rest. The image here is uh, difficult, all an impression of total exposure and utter defenselessness in the presence of God. Nothing escapes divine scrutiny. If you wanted to give a picture of it, it's, it's a little bit grisly. It's kind of like being strip searched. It's kind of the, the, the feel of it. Um, it doesn't work to put a nice face on this. How does someone naked and exposed feel? Throw that at you. How does somebody naked and exposed feel? Would you agree with me? Ashamed. You know what shame is? The expectation of seeing disdain in the eyes of someone else. That's shame. It's, it's the expectation that somebody's going to look at you. Jeez. Oh, and so that's what shame feels like. It's associated with ugly. And what we do then when we are afraid to be shamed is we become ashamed. And ashamed, the, the facial kind of thing for ashamed is this. I just, I, I look away. Why am I looking away? Because I know what I'm going to see. And so I, I, if, I, if, I, if I turn away from it, if I try to hide my face, then um, I won't see the face that I'm expecting to see. This is the sense that there is a sense to being strip-searched by the Word of God and exposed, our thoughts and attitudes judged, and the sense is, I don't want to look at God because I know what, I know what face I'm going to see. I'm going to see judgment. That's the image here. Um, what does somebody naked and exposed need? I want you to imagine you are in a position to be naked and exposed, and you're looking away. You know what I think might help? Say, if, if, if you were a person who feels ashamed, and there's a lot of things that you feel, you feel exposed and you feel alone, if I were to come and say, you know what, I know exactly how you feel, and if there's a sense of sympathy, when you're ashamed, Sympathy is very powerful because you no longer feel alone. To feel shame is to feel alone and exposed. To be sympathized with feels, oh, and it's, it's what we, it's what we need in that time. Um, divine sympathy connects us to God. We need divine sympathy because the word of God judges our hearts. This is where I think this passage goes together. Listen to it in context. For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrate to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the, the, the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And what we have, we then are in this place where having been judged, sense of exposed by the word of God, we're going to enter into the presence of God. How does a person who feels shame and think about entering the throne of grace and makes you kind of nervous, doesn't it? Entering the throne of grace and and you've got your birthday suit on and... um, um, you know what you might need? Let's let that express the throne of grace. And I'm this person who, like all of us, is the sense of, I don't want to go there. And here comes the Son of God to the side door. And he comes right up to me, comes right before me. I understand exactly how you feel. Let me take you into the presence of my Father. You mean you're going to go with me? You'll walk with me? Yeah, I'd like to. In fact, he sent me to walk with you because he knew how you would feel. And he told me to come. In fact, the reason why I took on flesh and blood is so I could understand exactly how you feel. You understand how I feel? You never sinned. I know but I know what restlessness feels like. And what he wants us to do is for us to go enter his rest. Would you come with me? That's what we're going to do. We're going to enter his rest. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. So with Jesus, and there's a sense of sympathy, I find the ability to come from a place of exposure into a place of rest because I don't go there alone. That's why God sent his son so that we could have an awareness of divine sympathy and that could move us toward the throne of grace. Uh, Mankind has a spiritual problem. The law is written on our hearts. You don't need to be exposed to a Bible in order to feel judged by God. And you don't have to be a Christian. That's what it says. Um, In Romans 2, for when Gentiles, and they assume they don't have at that point, they weren't exposed to the 39 books of the Old Testament. Okay, so we'd say then, if they're not exposed to the Ten Commandments, they have nothing to worry about, right? They have no sense of exposure before God. Listen to what it says. Paul writing, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Look what it says. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Here's a question. 
how do you know the law is written on your hearts? So you'd want to do what God wants you to do, right? Isn't that what it means? The law written on your heart means that you only want to do what God wants you to do. Is that right? Let's find out what it says. So it says, the law written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You know what the, I, the sense that the law is on our heart is? We have accusing and defending thoughts. It has the sense of indictment. We all feel exposed and judged. I have coveted. I have, and we all are guilty. And so what we end up doing then is defending ourselves. Well, of course I coveted. I mean, look at that house. Of course I want that house. But we not only accuse ourselves, defend ourselves, we accuse ourselves. And here's what it's depicting. This thing in your mind, the thoughts, the committee that's there, you should be ashamed of yourself. And there's nobody talking. It's in your head. Look what you did. Guilty. 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 And there's another part of you who says, wait, hey, wait, wait a minute. So, not guilty. Of course I did that. And so there's this courtroom in our mind. And there's never a shortage of things on the docket. Our minds are always active. Always thinking about why I did what I did. And that's the, that's what it indicates. And you don't have to be a Christian for that to be true. In fact, what it indicates is that this is the problem with mankind. All mankind has this problem. A sense of accountability that they might not be fully conscious of, but it's operating. That's what the writer is saying. Uh, law in the heart means there's a courtroom in our mind. Our thoughts accuse and defend ourselves. They do so because, again, they deal with a sense of indictment. We suffer from a deep awareness of divine indictment. This is because the Word of God judges our hearts. Um, and what it indicates is you said, well, you know what, I, I think I'm okay. It says, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You know what the secrets are? The hidden things. God just doesn't judge the obvious things, the things that we're conscious of. He judges the hidden things, things that we can't see. So what does this mean? Um, it means that we cannot enter the throne of grace by ourselves. There's too much of a sense of exposure to judgment. What do we need? You know who we need, not what we need, who we need. We need God in human skin. One who sympathizes with us and understands us, one that we don't have to defend ourselves against because he's not pointing a finger. And that's what Jesus comes to bring, a sense of divine sympathy. Is this nice? Is divine sympathy nice? If you're going to get to the throne of grace and speak freely, and if that's what he wants, I want you to listen to me. He is asking you to come into his presence and to speak freely with him there, openly. That's his command. You say, ah, and 
In order to do that, you are going to need to connect with the divine sympathy of the Son of God. In order to be that open and that free, it's not something we learn all of a sudden. It, we learn it over time, but that's where we're headed. In terms of a Christian life, which, where are you headed in terms of your Christian life? Let me tell you where you're headed. Into an increasing ability to enter God's presence and to speak honestly with Him. You know, we do prayers and we do, it's fine to do pattern prayers and we thank, we, God, thank you for today. And sometimes we come into God's presence and we're really not thankful for today. And He knows it. Thank you for your blessings. You're not thinking about his blessings. In fact, if you were really honest with him, what you'd say, you know, God, I really don't feel like being here now. I remember the first time I was in, I was in college at the University of Pennsylvania, and I grew up not kind of telling God what I was thinking. I remember once in college, I, I said, you know what, God? And I think I was writing at the time. I kind of write prayers out sometime. My mind goes, anyways. So I say, God, I'd like to... I really don't like you. <laughs> In fact, where I, it, I, whenever I think of you, I, I feel guilty. And there's this thing about where can I go from your presence? That doesn't make me feel very comfortable. Because if I can't go away from you, I, I can't go away from guilt. And I remember telling him. And yeah, I remember telling him this. I would really like to come to a place where I would read something like Psalm 139 and where can I go from you and where can I hide and where can I go from your presence and that it would make me feel warm rather than cold. I remember telling him that. And it took a long time. But I really like the fact that he's with me. And it doesn't feel cold anymore. Not because I'm perfect. I do all kinds of things. But the sympathy of the Son... And the sovereignty of the Father is really, it's like they're two lenses of a binoculars. And you look through both of them and there's a sense of he's good and he's great. That's what the writer is encouraging us to understand. Um, how do we enter God's presence and speak freely? Uh, we have to move out of the courtroom into the family room. Look what it says. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him in John 8.31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. My word here, again, I am not, the Old Testament is exactly what it's meant to be. But the word of God and Jesus' word are not the same word. The word of God exposes and judges. The Old Testament, that's what it's supposed to do. Then we come to Jesus, and Jesus' word is different. There's a sense of sympathy. There's not just judgment. So what Jesus is saying to these individuals, and they are Jews at the time, he's saying, if you remember, well, let's see what he says. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. To abide means remain. What Jesus says, if you take my word and keep it in your brain and think about it, then he says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does Jesus' word do? We feel accused that we have an 
impermanent place in the family because we're messing up. And what Jesus wants to do is give us the sense that we not are, we're not slaves, but sons and daughters. A slave doesn't have a permanent place in the family. They have to keep on performing. A son or daughter belongs to it forever. What Jesus wants to do in your life is move you from slave faith to son-daughter faith. From a sense of, I don't have a permanent place in the family to a sense that I do. And that sense that you have a permanent place in the family, that you're being included does not depend on you doing everything right. Once you start to feel that way, let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to walk with Jesus into the throne of grace, and it will begin to be possible to speak more freely with God there. Not to say right things to him, but real things. And that's what he wants. In fact, that's what he wants. That's what he commands. Uh, Jesus indicated to those who received him that they would remain in his teaching. Uh, If we make room for Jesus' word, the word will move us out of a slave mindset into a son or daughter mindset. The Christian word, we've talked about this, is not receive. Again, you can receive Christ or receive, and there's a number of ways we begin our Christian life, but what the Christian life is, it's about remaining. Remain. That's the Christian word, remain. If you remain in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll end up seeing God in a different way, and you'll end up creating an ability, developing an ability to speak freely with him, to be a little more comfortable. Does this happen overnight? Absolutely not. We have The brain is wired for stasis. Our brain is wired to, to think the same way about things. And what God is going to do in our minds is change the way we look at him. That change is going to take time. It's going, at first, and you'll feel, I don't know what to believe here. I'm all confused, and there's a confusion that comes. I thought he was the big person with the point. No, he isn't. He isn't. God is who Jesus says he is. And what ends up happening, we end up becoming disintegrated. Then, gradually, we start to change the way we think about him. And how would you know your, your thinking is changing? You'll find a growing ability to be honest with him. And you'll actually begin to want to talk with him. Again, that takes a long time. It takes a while. Um, we have, we, uh, why does, what does somebody naked and exposed need? They need sympathy. Uh, divine sympathy connects us to God. We need divine sympathy because of the word of God. And we have divine sympathy because of the son of God. Look what it says. Um, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. That says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God wants us to come into his presence with confidence. What prevents us from doing so? Three things. Um, Pretense, fear, and shame. Pretense, fear, and shame. When we're pretending, 
we don't come honestly to someone. When we fear, we don't come honestly. When we're ashamed, we don't come honestly. I remember in, when there were times where I really liked this passage and I memorized it early on. If you want to remember a passage, I remember I memorized it in a different version, but I, I thought of this passage often. And what has occurred to me is that it deals with the things that keep me from coming with confidence into the throne of grace. What keeps, what gets in the way of you entering the throne of grace with confidence? Pretense, fear, and shame. Those three things. And it tells us three things about, well, what does it say? The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrate to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. When we understand what he knows, we don't need to pretend. When you're saying to God, God, thank you for today, he knows you're not thankful for today. Why don't you tell him the truth? You say, well, it's, you know, he does, he wants, no, he, what he wants to hear is the truth. When we understand what he knows, we don't need to pretend. God understands you. He understands you. You don't need to pretend with him. When you understand what he knows, you don't need to pretend. Sometimes it's not pretense, it's fear. But when you understand who he is, you don't need to be afraid. Who is he? It says, since we have a great high priest. Do you know what a high priest exists for? To deal with sinners. If you're not, if you're not a sinner, you have no business with a high priest. Go somewhere else. If you're a sinner... He is the one you need to deal with. He's the one. And so, when you understand who he is, God's professional at dealing with sinners, you don't have to be afraid of him to come as you are. Sometimes it's pretense, but when you understand what he knows, you don't need to pretend. Sometimes it's fear. When you understand who he is, you don't need to be afraid. Sometimes it's not pretense or fear is shame. But when you understand how he feels, you don't need to be ashamed because he sympathizes with your weaknesses. And it, it ends up talking about that in the text. There's sometimes I feel, and I felt disconnected from God. I remember I used to use these. And I, this is how I used to use it. I felt really distant from him. You know, like you throw up your prayers and they get caught up in cotton candy. They don't, they don't go any higher than the ceiling. You know, bing, boing. And then I do some inventory. Am I remembering what he knows? <laughs> and sometimes I catch myself. I say, God, I really didn't want to do that thing I did. Yes, I did. And sometimes I catch myself pretending. And rather than say, God, you know what? I'd like to say I didn't want to do that thing, but I did want to do it. And that confuses me because I both wanted to do it and I didn't. Anybody understand that? That we go this way. We want and don't want. And, and so, I, and there's times that I'll catch myself. Oh, gee, I wasn't telling him the truth. I was telling him I didn't. And so then, well, oftentimes, I did tell him the truth and I still feel distance. And then I'll say, okay, am I remembering who he is? That he's a great high priest. Oh, Gosh, I forget. I was thinking that he only liked perfect people, but he deals with sin. Oh, sometimes I catch myself doing that. I forgot who he was. And 
And sometimes I didn't forget who he was. I knew, and I wasn't pretending, and I wasn't afraid, but with me, shame. And it's, did I forget? Did I forget how he felt? That he sympathizes with my weakness, because when he's, when I know how he feels, I don't need to be ashamed. A lot of times I'll catch it on that one. I think I shouldn't be dealing with the things that I'm dealing with. I think I should be farther ahead than I am, and I feel ashamed. I don't want to look at him. And, and that's when it helps to be reminded of how he feels. What will keep you from approaching the throne of grace with confidence? Pretense, fear, and shame. Can I tell you something? You don't need to pretend because he already knows everything that you would tell him, but he wants you to speak freely. And why? Hey, why? He wants me to. He already knows. Why does he want me to speak freely? Because it's a relationship, and you and to have a relationship, you have to talk to somebody. That's why he doesn't just want you to go into his presence. You just stand there and say, "You already know." So why don't you just read my mind? That's not what he says. He says, speak freely to me. Why? Because I'm your father and you're my son and my daughter and this is a relationship and you need to talk to me. And you don't have to talk out loud. You can direct your thoughts to him, but talk with him. And so, um, um, you can tell him the truth. And just by the way, you don't need to be afraid because he's, Jesus is a merciful high priest and you're not going to find this finger. The father dispatched Jesus. So you don't need to be afraid. And you don't need to be ashamed because Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses. Um, application. This is a passage. Philippians 4 says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God promises that his peace will allow our hearts and minds to remain in Christ. Um, and it says, let us not be anxious about anything. You know what anxieties are? I'll close with this. Anxieties literally mean a divided mind. A divided mind. I want you to think about Martha. Remember the story about Mary and Martha? Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and... Martha is over here in the kitchen, and she looks at Mary over in the living room with Jesus, and she says to Jesus, uh, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? And you know what Martha's problem is? She has a split mind because part of Martha wants to be in the kitchen. She's the oldest, and that's her responsibility. Part of her wants to be in the kitchen. So one of her one set of desires is pulling her into the kitchen. You know what the other problem is? There's another set of desires pulling her into the living room. She has a split mind. Half of her wants to be in the kitchen and half of her wants to be in the living room. And she feels the tension. You know what that tension is called? You want to be in two places at one time? You know what that's called? Anxiety. And what Jesus ends up telling her, Martha, Martha, you are troubled about many things you're pulled in half and then he ends up telling her what's necessary you know what would have been interesting for Martha if she had rather than 
fought in herself if she could have presented her request to God and spoke freely with him? I wonder what would have happened if she had said this to him. You know, Jesus, here's my problem. Half of me wants to be in the kitchen and half of me wants to be at your feet. What we tend to do is we tend to allow desires to battle within us rather than expressing them to him. God, I don't know what to do. Half of me wants to be here and half of me wants to be there. And once we tell him that, give me wisdom. That's what he wants us to learn to do. I wonder what that would have looked like. The nice thing Martha does is she opens her heart to him. And what we're told, if we speak freely with God, it says his peace will cause our hearts and minds to remain in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to close with this. Why do we need to speak freely with God? Because what it says is this. If you present your request to him, not just the request that you might want to request, but the real ones, and you're not... If you present what it says, God will dispatch his peace... And cause your hearts and minds to remain in Christ. So here, does God tell you to pray because he's going to give you whatever you pray for? Not in this passage he doesn't. Why do you need to pray then? Because if you present your request, he'll give you his peace. And his peace will allow your heart and mind to stay in Christ Jesus. We'll talk about this at the seminar, but the point for this morning is in Devin, come on up. A couple things need to happen, I think. When we understand that we're not being condemned, when self-condemnation goes down, you know what ends up happening? When self-condemnation goes down, self-awareness starts to go up. You become aware of your thoughts and feelings. You can't become aware of something that you're throwing penalty flags at. I shouldn't be thinking that. I shouldn't want that. And we end up pushing this stuff down and we end up coming before God and say, see, I'm fine. He already knows what's been pushed down. Condemnation has got to go down. As condemnation goes down, you know what you end up doing? You end up being aware of what you want and think. And you know what ends up happening when there's awareness? You can express it to him. You can't express what you're not aware of. And you can't be aware of what you're condemning. You can't express what you're not aware of. And you can't be aware of what you're condemning. Stop condemning yourself. He isn't. What should I do? Be aware of your thoughts and feelings. Jesus sympathizes. Go with him into the throne of grace and present your request. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ. That's the way the Christian life is supposed to work. Father, thank you for um, inviting us to the throne of grace to speak freely with you. Give us the sense that the door is open. And you would have us again speak freely and as in order to help deal with some of those things that prevent us from doing so, you assure us that we don't need to pretend because you know and 
we don't need to be afraid because Christ is a high priest and we don't need to be ashamed because he sympathizes with our weaknesses. I'd ask that in a progressive way, it doesn't happen fast, we would find an increasing capacity to be drawn towards you and to speak freely with you. It doesn't happen fast, but continue to do this work in our hearts so that we might approach the throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy, find grace to help in time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a reminder, if, you, if you're going to um, sign up for the seminar, tear the thing off so we'll have the, uh, enough materials for you. Thanks.